The scripture reading this morning was could be taken from uh, Romans 6, the whole chapter. So we'll read uh, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we could no longer we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also... Also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you, to make you obedient to its passions. Do not present your members as sin as to sin as righteous as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you are that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you became, become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your more natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, certain now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time, at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, uh, beginning in chapter 6. 
Our text this morning is chapter 6, verse 14 uh, through 7, verse 1, and we're primarily going to be looking at um, verse 1 there in chapter 7. Romans 6 is uh, a relatively complex passage. Um, He makes multiple arguments there, but primarily he's saying that it is incumbent upon the believer to be a slave to righteousness and no longer a slave to sin. This passage as well in 2 Corinthians asks us to come away from our brokenness and to pursue righteousness. Uh, This is the second sermon in a a series I've entitled The Marks of Maturity, and this morning we consider loathing the sin, loathing personal sin. Uh, The L in loathing fit quite well with living, and the next sermon is loving, Um, and so it was used there. Some of the the biblical words we use, though, are mortify. Uh, That's the King James word, Uh, mortify the deeds of the flesh, Uh, put away sinfulness. And so I'll admit up front that this morning we have a bit of a heavy task, both to consider ourselves and to consider the eternal weight that is put on this reality. I'll read our text at this time, uh, 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. The first mark of maturity that we looked at was living the word. The responsibility of a mature Christian to be taking the word of God, to seeking to understand it, and by its understanding allow it to shape our desires. And if you remember, we, we saw this not as an elevator, but as a stairway where we pursue the transformation of our desires, and our desires force us to pursue the truth of Christ. And again, the truth of Christ changes our desires and gives us a desire for righteousness. And so it's a 
spiral staircase that goes up. The word changing our desires, the desires seeking the truth of Christ. In our second mark here, we want to consider what Scripture has to say about putting to death sin. To mortify sin or to loathe our sin is simply to say that we take an adversarial position against our natural sinfulness. This is not a position of defense that says, I'm going to keep sin out here. To be sure, we do some of that. But it's a position attack against the sin that is born in each of our hearts. It's an against an enemy that we know is within. The truth that the gospel brings to us is that we, alienated, broken, unable, are made righteous by the grace of God. And if you're here this morning, and that's not the reality of your life, you are still an alien to Christ. The gospel calls to you and says, Repent, believe, turn. And God, the gracious Father, will come and He will rescue and He will bring holiness. He will bring righteousness and He will work in you His glory. And so that call is for all of us. This call to put away sin is for believers. One who is an unbeliever cannot put away enough sin to make God happy with them. Okay, If Christ isn't your Savior, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Him, you can attempt to reform yourself as much as you wish, but you will never gain the favor of God apart from Christ and apart from faith and trust in Him. Our key verse is, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, chapter, uh, verse 1. And we see three main points, three main considerations. He tells us to consider that we have promises. And because of those promises, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And then finally, because of those promises, to bring holiness to completion. And those are the three things that we're going to consider this morning. The reality of the eternal holiness of God and His gracious goodness to us will cause us to drive out sinfulness from our lives and pursue righteousness. Now, I need to acknowledge that I'm much. I'm very grateful to uh, the Puritan John Owen in his book *Mortification of Sin* uh, for the destruction of my person. Um, if you've read the book, you understand what I mean. This is the the Christian work on what it means to do away with the sins that plague us, and and I recommend it to you. Um, it, it's it's a devastating book. It really takes you apart. But that is the reality of what needs to happen in each of our lives. So first of all, we have these promises concerning God's action on our behalf. And what are those actions that we see? 
The first we see is, is God says, I will make my dwelling place among you. Let's consider that for a bit. God says to humanity who has rejected him, I will come and I will make my dwelling place among you. He promises that to each of us. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell among us. But he's also done this in a real sense in that Jesus came as a real human, as you and I, and he dwelt among us. Secondarily, God says, I will welcome you if you place your faith and trust in me. If you pursue righteousness, I will welcome you. The door is open for each and for all. Not only will he welcome, but he says, I will be a father. To those who cry to him, Abba, Father. He says, you will be my children. There's, it, for me, there's very few things that, uh, that rank with one of my children coming and sitting on my lap and being my child. And I can be their father. And they're growing up and they don't like that as much anymore. And I grieve that. So if you have little ones, hold them. But that's the image of what God does to us. He will be our Father. He will care for us. He will love us. He will provide for us. And so it's based on those promises that God will dwell with us, that He will welcome us, that He will be our Father, that He then implores to us to cleanse ourselves. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of soul and body. But we have to ask the question, what are we cleansing ourselves from? If we don't understand our brokenness, it's difficult for us to understand our need for cleansing. In Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, our world says, follow the desires of your heart. You know, the, the, the best thing that you could do is to do what your heart desires, right? To be uniquely you, to be satisfied in yourself. Well, Scripture, and especially Jeremiah, says differently that to follow the desires of your heart is to be desperately sick because we can't understand our own heart. I'm sure we've all gone through a situation where we felt we were doing what was right and we thought we understood our desires and we thought we worked out of good desires only to find after careful examination that we were serving ourselves, that we were seeking our own. Even good things we can pursue for the glory of ourselves to make much of ourselves. And so our heart is not to be trusted. Romans 6.12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Paul is speaking to the reality that if we're not careful, sin is the default. 
Serving ourselves is the default. The following of our heart leads us normally into sin. As a son of Adam, our heart's first desire is to serve ourself. A prominent preacher said, Your heart is very deceitful and deceptive. It will trick you over and over into thinking that a TV show, the perfect family, fame, or money are more satisfying than Christ. But you need to kill those suicidal desires with the sword of the Spirit. Now, what I found interesting in that quote is that he equalized the TV show and the perfect family. And we don't normally like that. But the reality is, is we can even pursue good things to such a degree that they rob us of Christ, that they take the place of Christ. They become our ultimate above Christ. John Owen says in in The Mortification of Sin, sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, But if let alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. And so what we are seeking to cleanse is our innate brokenness. We're seeking to cleanse the darkness of our hearts. Thirdly, then, we're to bring holiness to completion. We're to bring holiness to completion. We're to put away sin, and we're to grow righteousness. Our heart, uh, as an illustration, our heart is like a garden. By faith, we receive the implanted word and the miracle act of God saving us. And then keeping with that faith, we protect it and grow it by rooting out all the weeds that compete for the soil of our heart. You see, it's it's not only good enough to plant the seed. You must root out the things that will compete for its growth. We may look at our lives and we may say, well, I, I, I wish I could be more loving. I wish I could be more generous. I wish I could be more this. And and often, the reason that those characteristics aren't growing is because we've allowed something else to grow. And it may not be related. They may not be similar, but we've allowed another desire of the heart that's leading us down to grow and to suck up the heart's reserve of desire. And we allow our desires to grow and overwhelm. If you think of a garden, uh, or you think of growing crops. Uh, One of the things in the South, um, in my farming experience, we had a weed called morning glory. And it was this vine. It was, and and if it took over a patch of corn, like you, you took your combine and you slowed it down to an absolute crawl. And even then you might not be able to get through it because it completely overwhelmed what was good. If we don't root out those evil desires, those self-serving desires, they will overwhelm the fruitfulness of our actions. And so we see that because of God's 
action on our behalf. We root out sin and we bring holiness to completion. And so I have a number of ways that we specifically do that in our life. What are, what's the strategy with which we pursue the rooting out of sin? And I have five or six ways here that we do that. The first weapon against sin is the church of Christ. It is the community of believers. Paul David Tripp says, I'm deeply persuaded that self-examination is a community project. Personal, spiritual insight is a product of community. One of the recognitions of our heart's deceitfulness is our recognition that we can't know our own hearts. And sometimes we need someone else to say, I know you think that way, but this is really what I think is going on. And uh, Gary Thomas, in his book, The Sacred Marriage, makes the makes the argument that that's one of the primary purposes of marriage, to have someone who can see everything and can help you ascertain what is going on in my heart. Because often they're going to see us clearer than we see ourselves. And that's a really uncomfortable truth. And so within the church, we are to be known. And we are to be knowing Both of those are an effort that we are to pursue. Do you allow yourself to be known? Are your friends, are the people close to you invited in to your heart to see, to be able to say, brother, sister, I'm not sure about this. Or brother, sister, here's a good plant that's growing. Keep watering that one. And so we be known and we be knowing. We pursue people to learn to know. And in that, we be affectionate. 2 Corinthians 6, earlier in in verses 11 to 13 says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your heart's also. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, we've opened up our hearts, we've shared, we've allowed ourselves to be known. Now return that knowing. Open up your heart, be warm to those around you. Hebrews 3, 12 12 to 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so the addressing of an unbelieving heart is a community project. We are to take care for each other, to walk along each other. You know, you know sometimes if, uh, if the weeds in your heart are like the sunflower plants that were in our garden sometimes that come back, you know, one person can't just grab a hold of that and root it out. It sometimes takes many and sometimes it takes a machete. But the reality is we as a brotherhood are responsible for each other, to care for each other, to bring this battle against sin to fruition. The second instruction we see is in 
verse 14. Or another way that we put to death sin is to not be unequally yoked. This instruction was primarily to Corinthians regarding the integral nature of their temple worship and their pagan religious ceremonies. And Paul is saying that you cannot continue to participate in these activities and organizations that will draw you away from your devotion to God. You cannot allow your faith in Christ to be yoked somehow with something else. Uh, The Old Testament image that this comes from in in Deuteronomy 22 says that you're not to harness a donkey and an ox to plow together. Okay, they're just different animals. You might have two donkeys and you might have two ox and they're going to work together fine. Okay, but you can't have one of each. And the same is true in your life. You can't hitch your life to that which may lead you away from Christ and try to hitch your life to that which is going to lead you towards Christ and expect harmony and movement to occur in a way that's profitable. And so as we consider this unequal yoke, I think I would be hesitant to make blanket statements that would tell us not to have business partnerships or not to be involved in the community in in certain ways. But we must be careful that we are not attaching ourselves to something that will pull us off the path. We become like the people we spend our time with. And if we're not active in resisting the pull of sin that may reside in some of those organizations, and it can pull us away. The third way we do this is we keep the grace of the gospel ever before us. 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 and 2, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. The primary fuel for the pursuit of the rooting out of sin in our lives is our understanding of the gospel. Owen says, This is one main reason why the Spirit and the new nature is given unto us, that we may have a principle within whereby to oppose sin and lust. And so, keeping the truth of the gospel in front of us is important for two reasons. Because the gospel tells us that we're broken and we're in need of a Savior, and that we cannot rescue ourselves. But then it also provides the presence of Christ in our lives to empower us to root out sin. The gospel says that God has not left us in our sin, and He has acted on our behalf. And He says, they shall be my people. And it's in the grace of the gospel that He has purchased these as his people. One of the reasons it's important to keep the gospel central is that we don't fight sin by turning our attention on ourselves. And so, yes, we need to be critiquing ourselves. Yes, we need to be seeing ourselves. But if that's our only effort, that will not lead us to put away sinfulness in an adequate way. Hebrews 12 states, throw aside every weight and sin that clings closely by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so it's by placing our eyes on the truth of the gospel, by placing our eyes on Jesus and by chasing after him, that we begin to realize this thing is stopping me from that pursuit. I need to throw it away. 
We don't, we don't figure that out by looking at ourselves and say, well, I think that might stop me and that might stop me. We, we're moving. We're walking towards Christ. And, you know, the shoe starts to hurt the back of your heel. And so you realize that that shoe's not what you should be wearing. So you throw it away. It's in the running that you understand where your weaknesses are. Now, I'm not a runner, but I know that most injuries for runners don't happen in a mirror. Okay? The runner doesn't look at the mirror and say, which part of me is going to fail? No, it's going to be 10 miles in to his marathon that this muscle fails. And that's when he figures out where his weak parts are because he's running towards a goal. Fourthly, the battle against sin is to be done every day. This is not something that we do part-time. It is a full-time effort to put to death the sin that is in each of us. Hebrews 13, but exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it is today. Again, uh, John Owen from The Mortification of Sin. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God who has furnished us with a principle of doing it. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. Every single day, we have the choice to prevail against sin or have it prevail against us, to fight back or allow it to dominate us. You never get a day off in contending and mortifying sin. Fifthly, killing sin is a complete effort. It addresses all areas of our hearts. It's not something we can do simply on one area. As Hebrew says, throw aside every weight. And again, John Owen says, without universal sincerity for the mortifying of every lust, no lust will be mortified. He also makes the point in there that sometimes our pursuit against sin or the offensive of sin against us is rooted in our failure in other areas of our lives. And so if we're not in God's Word, if we're not praying, if we're not being with the brothers, we may find ourselves fighting a sin that we didn't realize we were, we were succumbing to. But we've neglected something else. And so fighting sin is a complete effort of putting off sin and putting on godliness. And then sixth, killing sin is a me-first endeavor. Killing sin is a me-first endeavor. We look to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judges. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will measure to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. 
you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think one of the realities that we don't often admit is, is I know your sins far better than I know my own, and with certain clarity. Jesus is telling us the opposite. That what we see as a speck in our brother's eye may actually be a log in our own. And so, killing sin is a me-first endeavor. And then finally, killing sin is to be aggressive as aggressive as amputation. Again, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This presses upon us the seriousness of this endeavor. The harsh reality is, is if, if we don't look at our lives and we don't see this effort to kill sin, if we've coddled our sin, if we've allowed it to remain, if that's our reality, then we should question our salvation. If within your life you know there's something and you've been protecting it, you've been coddling it, and you've not let anybody see it, and when anybody touches it, then it makes you upset and self-protective. The warning of this passage is that your faith may not be in Christ. And so the pursuit of the death of sin in our life has eternal consequences. It's not optional. Again, be clear, salvation is born of our faith in Christ, but that faith affects us, and it causes us to put aside those things that are in opposition to Christ. And if we're not doing that, then we should question whether Christ is there at all. I would ask us to consider our own hearts. Do we have a me-first pursuit of killing sin? Is it rooted in the gospel of Christ? Is it rooted in His presence within our hearts? In conclusion, again, consider these words from 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God.
This is a good and godly endeavor that we should each pursue with all of our abilities. It is a mark of Christian maturity. Let's have a song.